A quick word before we jump in. This is an ongoing investigation, and the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are opinions, not facts. Everyone is presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Movie theaters and bowling alleys were closed. Restaurants offering takeout only. And nightlife was non-existent. The summer of 2020 has been cemented in our minds as a time of pandemic, fear, loneliness, and never-ending boredom. It's not surprising that it's also the time when a new app promising unexpected adventures right in your own backyard became wildly popular, especially with the younger crowd. One group of teens decided to explore Alki Beach, a typical Pacific Coast town on the west side of Seattle. Small shops and mom-and-pop restaurants line the sidewalk that sits opposite a sandy beach along the Pacific Ocean. It was a sunny day in June when the teens headed out looking for a random GPS coordinate, not knowing what they might find. And of course, they brought their cell phones with them to record their adventure. Guys, we found a, a suitcase at the <laughs> When they spotted a suitcase in the water that had gotten stuck on a large pile of rocks, they wondered what was inside. As they got closer, the stench of the contents nearly made them turn around. But their curiosity got the better of them. They just had to open it to see what was in there. Okay, so she's calling the police so we can see if it's actually a dead body or it's just... The fear. cops thought it was a prank, <laughs> but this was anything but a laughing matter. The remains of a young couple, dismembered, tossed away like trash. But who were they? And who was the monster who could have done such a thing? You can work yourself up into a crime of passion, but when it comes down to actually taking a human body and cutting it into pieces, you do have to be a person who lacks the ability to empathize on any kind of level. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. For those of you not familiar with Seattle, if the Space Needle is the crown jewel, West Seattle's Alki Point would be one of those glittering side jewel gems. I mean, it's such a beautiful neighborhood. It's 12 miles, give or take, from downtown Seattle. And if you live in or around Seattle, it's just a go-to place, no matter what age you are. And you can imagine roller skaters, bikers, runners, walkers. And in the backdrop, you see our famous you know, green and white ferries going back and forth, the Olympic Mountains. So it's really a beautiful, beautiful place. When I was in high school, one of the highlights was going cruising on Alki Beach. <laughs> I totally see you doing oh my that. God, Did yeah. you have a convertible? <laughs> yeah. I have. You know what? We had multiple cars. Oh, I'll just okay. say that. Anyway, I've had my late 80s hairstyle with like <laughs> Aquanet. But anyway, you get the picture. So at the Duwamish Head, which is the northernmost point of West Seattle, that's where these kids 
found that black suitcase amongst all these? Because even though it's during the pandemic, that's one of the places you can still walk around. It's open. There's lots of people. So it wasn't like it was this place that nobody knew about. It oh, was no. very much a hive of activity, yeah. you know, even in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. So this crime that we're covering for this episode is still being investigated. So we weren't able to talk to any detectives who are currently on the case because they weren't able to talk with us. But we did get a lot of details from probable cause statements and other police and court records. And this is one of those viral stories that caught the eye of people all over the country, in large part because of how the victims were discovered. So this started on June 19th. These teens found a black suitcase at the edge of the water of Alki Beach. It had actually washed up onto some really big, dark boulders like what you would see near piers to shore up and define the coastline. There's this suitcase that's just sitting there. And as they get close to it, they notice this unbelievably bad odor. One of the teens is recording on his phone while the other teen climbs down to see what's inside. And when she unzips the suitcase and flips open the cover, there's a black trash bag that is completely taking up the suitcase, clearly has something inside of it. But this isn't just a typical trash bag. It's what looks like one of those extra durable construction grade bags. And the odor at this point becomes completely overwhelming. So these teens decide that rather than try and open the garbage bag themselves, they're going to call the police. They are worried about what might be in there. Well, and when you watch the video, too, it's like, a fun adventure. They're literally like, okay, it's TikTok. Let's let's have fun. I mean, I can see any, you know, couple of teens doing this, thinking this is kind of, okay, we're going to see that there's going to be garbage in here. And then it takes such a turn that it's like, this shit just got real. Guys, we found a, a suitcase at the beach. Guys, we go, I'll do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Wait, open it. <laughs> open it. It was sweet. <laughs> It stinks, y'all. It washed up. It's oh. Oh. Okay, so she's calling the police so we can see if it's actually a dead body or it's just food. <laughs> y'all, here's the crime scene. So that was the video that they posted to TikTok later on, as we already know inside that suitcase was something much worse than old food. But you might be wondering what led the teens to that spot in the first place. I mean, it was at Alki, which is a popular area, but the spot on the rocks that they climbed down to is not someplace that anyone would normally go. Apparently, they were using an app called Randonautica. The website for the app describes it as the world's first quantumly generated choose-your-own-adventure reality game. It encourages users to explore the world you never knew existed. So the app gives users known as randonauts randomly generated GPS coordinates. I was still a little bit unclear about, like, what exactly does that mean so and how is, do they get those coordinates? I mean, it sounds like geocaching, but it's not geocaching. It's geocaching like 3.0. Okay. So, of course, the best place I could think of to find answers about this new app was TikTok. And Ariel KC explains how the app works. If you like to be spooked, listen. Randonauting. It's an app you download. It's called Randonaut. What is it? Randonaut gives you... QRPs, quantum random points. What are quantum random points, bitch? Let me explain that to you. Quantum random points are high points of energy and power near you. Attractors have a lot of energy. Voids don't have as much. So if you really want to get spooked, you go to attractors. This app gives you the location of attractors and voids, and then you go. 
There is an entire subreddit where people explain the weird stuff that happens at these points. People report paranormal activity, leaving the simulation or reality, feeling like you're tripping on drugs, spiritual awakening. But the number one thing reported that they say is a phenomenon because it can't be explained is the universe will manifest whatever you want. So they say before you go to this point, think of something really hard that you want. So, for example, people report imagining finding something that will put their mind at peace, looking up coordinates from Randonautica, then finding a butterfly on a buttercup at the spot indicated. Or maybe they'll be imagining exploring something spooky and the coordinates will take them to the ruins of an old abandoned cabin. These are examples that are actually on the Randonautica website that have been shared by users. Do we know what these adventure seekers were looking for? Because that would be really creepy if they were looking for spooky adventure. I don't know what they had in mind, what they were hoping to manifest with this adventure. I mean, it seems like they were in a good mood. I mean, you hear them in the video, they're laughing and joking around. and But they didn't find butterflies. Uh, no, no, something much worse. Yeah, we, we don't know what they were looking for. But the teens who found the suitcase certainly found something much more gruesome than anything they could have imagined. The app's founder, Joshua Langelder, told Inside Edition that they had no idea what the teens would find when those coordinates were generated by the system. I was shocked and surprised. Um, we reached out to the teens and made sure that they were okay and let them know that that wasn't what we intended. It's an unfortunate coincidence. So do you believe in this idea of like manifesting your intentions? I think this is an incredible twist to the story that I had no idea. Kim, you have stumped me. Like, I did not know that this there was this backstory. I thought they were just doing like, hey, TikTok. You know, I didn't realize that there was this specific app to manifest. But in terms of do I believe in manifesting, I totally do in a certain context. Mm. Like, I think that if we look at it from the glasses half empty first, I think most of us can agree that if you are constantly negative and down in the dumps, you are going to manifest negative energy in, and, and people, right? But it, the glass is half full it, in the reverse. If you look at it as a law of attraction, positive energy, excitement, hard work, I believe are the building blocks of this manifesting in your life. But it's not just sitting there thinking, I want this to happen. I want this to happen. I want this to happen. Yeah, it has you to be know? a combination of your thinking and your actions. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But in this particular case, I think it's just a strange coincidence. Sounds like it. So these teens called Seattle police about this foul-smelling suitcase that they'd found on the shoreline. But of course, the report was not taken seriously. I mean, you know, they call up and say, hey, we found the suitcase on the shore and it smells really bad. It took Seattle police over an hour and a half to even respond to check it out. When they finally did arrive, the teens were gone and so was that full plastic bag. All they found was the black suitcase sitting on the rocks, the top flipped open, but nothing inside of it. So they scanned the water and they noticed what looked like a plastic bag floating just off the shore and what might be a human torso partially peeking out of it. So wait a second. So the suitcase was gone then? What, the suitcase what? was still there, but the contents of the suitcase were no longer there. Apparently, the water okay. had washed them out because the teens had opened the suitcase, okay. left it open. The water had come up and taken 
the bag out. Okay, so it had been quite a quite a bit of time before the the cops got there because the yeah. tide had basically come and washed washed it out. Okay, so the harbor patrol then had to be called out to help them retrieve the plastic bag that was out in the water. And as they're waiting for the boat to arrive, the officers are looking around still to see if there's any other evidence or anything, and they spot a black duffel bag that had also been stuck on some rocks about 50 yards to the east of where the suitcase had been found. That was right on the edge of the water as well, and the officers were using a log to try and coax the duffel bag closer to them. When you a think smaller they'd have like a hook or something. <laughs> hey, can you hand me the log? I need to grab this thing here. And then a smaller white trash bag apparently floated out of a hole in the side of the duffel bag. And as it's floating away, they noticed what looked like a human foot. Oh, my God. Sticking out of that bag. I'm just, I can't imagine. Like, there's bags in body parts just. Well, you know, what's interesting <laughs> is as this case was unfolding, I actually had one of, you know, a source in, in law enforcement reach out to me and say, we found, and this was days, days later, we found another bag. And oh, I was we'll like, get there. Okay. <laughs> Put a pin on it. <laughs> just wait. Now, I can only imagine what it would take to make this kind of discovery, what that would be like. So we decided to contact Jennifer Shen to get her insight. She is not only a forensic scientist, but also former director of the San Diego Police Department's crime lab. And she says she would categorize this as a body dump. And she says these kinds of cases are inherently difficult to solve. They're difficult for investigators because you you have a, the victim is located somewhere that's different than the scene of the crime. And because it's different from the scene of the crime, it doesn't have some of the evidence that you might be looking for in order to um, identify who the killer might be. So that that makes it more difficult. That means the body's been moved. So some of the the, uh, information on the body, like rigor mortis or the, the lividity, there's some sort of positional information you can get if the body is left where the victim was killed. So all of that goes out the window with the body dump. Uh, And here you do have, however, other information that you might look for, like how did the bags get to the body of water? Were there tire tracks? Were there shoe prints? Can we trace the bags themselves? I mean, if you have a suspect in mind, does anyone know that they had these kind of suitcases or these kinds of bags? So some of their things you can do. And then you can look for evidence on the containers themselves, fingerprints, DNA, hairs, fibers. So there are things you can do, but it just makes it a lot harder. Yeah, Seattle police were documenting this crime scene. The coroner was called out, and they were able to determine that the remains found in the suitcase and the duffel bag belonged to a man and a woman. But it would take an autopsy and several days to identify them as 27-year-old Austin Winner and 35-year-old Jessica Lewis, Jessica's aunt spoke with BBC News about the couple. They are just inseparable, you know, through the the good times and the hard times. If you got one, you got the other. And they were just in sync with each other like that. I I want people to know who they were, who they were. And they were good hearted people. At one time, she took care of hospice patients, elderly patients. Jessie was natural at it. And apparently she was actually working at a hospice center when she was killed. And wasn't she the mother of like four kids too? She did have four children. It's unclear where those children were. They were not apparently living with the couple. So I'm not really sure any details about those kids. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like she had a pretty good sized family. According to the autopsy, both Jessica and Austin were beaten and then shot to death. 
The coroner also noticed some grass and feathers inside of Jessica's mouth, so they collected those as evidence. Shen says it's actually surprising how much evidence the coroner was able to get from these remains, considering where and how they were found. The salt water itself, I mean, they were in bags in an enclosed container. But if you're not and the salt water gets in, that means the fish get in, the wildlife gets in, and then there's a lot of damage that's done to the bodies, which makes it hard to really understand what happened to your victims. In this particular case, it's very clear that they were dismembered, that the medical examiner was also able to tell that they were beaten and shot. So that means that the bodies must have been in pretty good condition. So you would imagine that's because they were wrapped in the plastic and in the secondary container that kept them sort of insulated from the ocean and the creatures in it. Shortly after the autopsy, the King County Sheriff's Office got a call about the discovery of more human remains. As you were mentioning, Carolyn, these were found near a power station on the Duwamish River, not far from Alki. They also had feathers on them. So the coroner determined that these were most likely remains connected with the victims found on the shoreline in Alki. Ten days after the remains were found, detectives met with Austin's family to deliver the news. They learned that Austin and Jessica had been dating for over seven years and for the last eight months or so had been renting a room from a man in Burien that the family knew only as Mike. And they told investigators that the couple were afraid of Mike and said that they'd recently even been assaulted by some men who had come into Mike's house. The men were reportedly armed with guns. They beat up Austin and demanded money from the couple. Detectives learned that Mike that they were rooming with was Michael Dudley. He's the 62-year-old owner of that home in Burien. The cops contacted him, and he said he hadn't seen the couple in over a week. Mike said he had been calling their cell phone, trying to make a plan to meet up, and he couldn't get through to them. Austin's father told detectives he had recently gone to the home looking for his son, and on one occasion he ran into Mike, who told him that the couple had left in a hurry. They left behind all their belongings, even their clothing, And as he was leaving, Austin's dad said he saw a pile of clothing in a garbage can that looked suspicious. Yeah. So investigators got a warrant to retrieve cell phone records for Jessica's cell phone, which the couple apparently shared. The last transmission was from a cell tower on July 9th. That's 10 days before the bodies were discovered. The tower it pinged off of was less than a mile from Dudley's home. There was another witness who spoke with investigators who said that she had moved some of her belongings into Dudley's home on the date of that last cell phone signal from the couple's phone. And she told police that she noticed Dudley had what looked like defensive wounds on his body when she arrived at the house. And he told her there was a room upstairs where she would be staying. And so she went up to go look at it. And when she did, she noticed there were heaps of clothing all over the floor and what looked like the outline of a person underneath that clothing. And she said she even saw what sort of looked like a bloody hand sticking out, but it freaked her out. So she kind of immediately turned around and left, didn't take a closer look. She went downstairs and told Dudley what she saw. And according to this witness, he laughed it off like it was a joke. And then he asked her if there was someplace she needed to go for a while because, yeah, I got a little bit of a mess I need to clean up. When I read that in the the charging documents, I just I didn't even know what to kind of emotionally do with that, because according to some of the pictures that I've seen just to set up how this house looked, it was far from the road. There's a gate there. There's a huge yard. So it was very private. And I can't imagine being at a place 
And seeing a body underneath with a hand sticking out, I would just want to get away as soon as possible. I would, too. But then maybe call the police. (laughs) But the other thing is, when you see something like that, I can only imagine that she had to think, this can't be real. This can't be what I'm really seeing. I mean... If, in fact, someone was murdered in this house, is the guy going to leave the body underneath a pile of clothing for me to come find? I mean, it just seems so unrealistic. I think it comes down to the the her gut was probably telling her, I think there's a body up there because I just saw a hand and he has defensive wounds. But this is so out of the realm of possibility in right. people's daily existences that's like, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe he has a sixth sense of humor. Yeah. And it's like, maybe it's... A, I don't a I, joke, I, again, but it's like it's tough to it's tough to take in. Well, this obviously was more than enough evidence to get a search warrant for Dudley's home. And inside police not only found bullet holes in the walls, shell casings on the floor, but that room had been freshly cleaned and painted. Shen says the crime scene made it clear that this was either a spur of the moment murder or it was just committed by a very disorganized killer. I mean, I think what people don't realize is now that you've done the killing part, the disposal of the body part is very difficult. And without a lot of planning and forethought, there are all sorts of things that you have to do that people don't think about until you're faced with it. You know, I saw that the room had been repainted where maybe some of this took place had been repainted, but they still found bullet holes and bullet defects. You can find blood in rooms that have been cleaned and repainted fairly easily. So... What he did is he killed these people in his own environment, it appears, where they could be traced to him in his home. And people saw him doing parts of it. So it seemed extremely disorganized after the fact. So that leads you to believe that the whole thing was sort of a disorganized, maybe more spur of the moment situation where he hadn't thought it all the way through because he just did a very terrible job, obviously. Neighbors told police they heard someone screaming, please don't do this. And they also heard gunfire on the evening of June 9th. That's the last date of that cell phone ping. In fact, there's even a police report from that night. The neighbor called the cops, but the officers reported that they arrived at the home. They knocked on the door. Nobody answered. So they left. Yeah. I was actually talking to Jim Fuda, who is the Crime Stopper president, because it seems like on the face of it, like, how could they leave if they, you know, are getting these 911? Somebody about, heard a gunshot <laughs> and fighting. And, and how do you just leave? <laughs> Probably. Right. And so he basically said that there is the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement to go into somebody's house, but there are exigent circumstances that make an exception, clearly when situations where, you know, law enforcement can see a fire or destruction of evidence. So there there are certain things that supersede that requirement of having a warrant. But Jim said that in this case, they would have to verify that those screams, they, you know, they, they, the screams have been called in, and then they hear the screams themselves, and then they can go. So it's not enough for a witness to have heard it. No. It has to be the officers themselves. Yeah, the, the officers. And, and there was no signs of foul play on the outside. Right. So they made the right call in this case because they couldn't, there weren't any screams going on. And honestly, at the point that they arrived, it was probably too late. Yeah. Something else that's really interesting about this is the coroner's report. It suggests that more than one person took part in this dismemberment, in part because of 
just how much work there was to do in the fact that they were put in multiple bags. They were dropped in multiple bodies of water. The coroner basically said, like, this was a lot of work. It probably took more than one person to do this. Shen says she's not quite sure about that. Yeah, a couple thoughts about that. One is I thought it was an interesting claim to make by the medical examiner. And I wonder when it actually goes to trial, if she will be that specific and forthcoming with that kind of information, because it's not easy on dismembered bodies to tell how many people dismembered them. She was really saying that based upon the um, wounds themselves, you could tell that different implements were used and that different parts of the body appeared to be removed in different ways. It's a little bit of a stretch, and I'm not a medical examiner, so I don't know, but it's a little bit of a stretch to say that the multiple people were involved then. Because you're right, to get other people to help you chop up bodies, unless you have some sort of hold on them, or unless they're involved in the crime also, that is very difficult. So I don't know how you do that unless you have some pull over them. You have some sort of, they, they are beholden to you in some way that's really significant because not many people can chop up bodies. I mean, like, even if you wanted to, it's not something I think most people could stomach. Well, and getting people to help and then being quiet, we haven't heard any information to lead us to believe. And and of course, they're holding stuff. It's an active investigation. You know, everybody is presumed innocent. uh, Right. And Michael Dudley has denied having any part of this murder and dismemberment of Jessica and Austin. But he did admit to police that he was arguing with the couple because they had failed to pay $1,500 in rent. And remember, because of rules put in place during the pandemic, landlords can't just throw people out for failing to pay the rent. There's a moratorium on evictions in Washington state. So clearly there is a motive here, but there's also more than that. Dudley's ex-girlfriend, Marlis Gordon, told King 5 News that he was abusive. She started to hit me and grab my hair and grab my head and my hair and he threw me on the floor and hit my head into the hardwood floor and then he was throwing me around and threw me and my stuff out on his patio, out out the door and on his patio, and then came out and hit my head into the patio and did that with one hand, and he was holding a gun in his other hand. You know, oh, they always say that about somebody, that, oh, you don't expect them to, you know, this, this doesn't seem like something they would do, or, but now I'm the one saying that. Yeah, it's really sad how often you hear that, that, you know, we never thought he could do this or she could do this. And then you're the one saying, well, now he did it to me. Well, and not only that, but you look at the guy's picture. I've seen in news reports. I mean, he looks like, you know, Santa Claus. I can see how people might just basing it on appearances alone think, you know, this is a grandpa. Right. You know? Yeah. So Dudley was arrested and charged with assault for that attack in 2016. And it's not the only time that Dudley was accused of being abusive. In June of 2018, a younger relative accused Dudley of sexual abuse. In her filing for a restraining order, she said that Dudley forced her to share a bed with him from age 10 through 18. She said that he would make her watch him masturbate while he watched pornography and on several occasions drugged her and raped her. Sadly, though, her request for that restraining order was denied because the court said that while she had requested the order under the category of sexual abuse, the abuse should have been under the category of domestic violence. And for that reason, they denied the restraining order. Is that incredible? I'm, I'm speechless. I mean, 
we hear these things and then there's, you know, all the warning signs are going to come out about this guy. Oh, and he also has convictions on his record for DUI, for having illegal weapons, for other felonies in other states. He has a long record. Despite all of this violence, his ex says that she can't imagine that Dudley would be capable of dismembering someone. And Shen agrees. She says dismemberment really does take the crime of murder to a totally different level. You can work yourself up into a crime of passion. You can work yourself up into some sort of righteous anger. You can work yourself up into believing somehow that you're you know, doing the world a favor, all of those things. You could see how someone might get themselves there. But when it comes down to actually taking a human body and cutting it into pieces to dispose of it, that takes someone with a really strong stomach. You have to be strong physically to do it because it's it's not that easy. And you, you really have to be able to remove yourself entirely from feeling any sympathy or empathy for those people. And, and you have to think that their families are going to find this out at some point, right? And so the, the lack of empathy for the family members of the victims is just extraordinary to me. So I think you do have to be a person who lacks the ability to feel and empathize on any kind of level. And I think that's something that we feel really strongly about trying to find some kind of justice for the victims. But when you don't even have a whole body to bury, I mean, that has to be really, really difficult. Yeah, how do you find closure with that? Do we know if they found all the pieces for the, you know, for the family? I don't know if they found all of the pieces. I mean, we know that they found three different bags. There were two suitcases and a duffel that had bags, plastic bags within them that had body parts. All of those remains belong to the couple. We don't know whether or not the remains are complete, whether there might be more bags out there somewhere. They haven't really specified that. Well, in the circumstances leading up, they're in a desperate situation, midst of the pandemic. Somebody heard one of the victims screaming, you know, just let me leave. Mm -hmm. To go through that, then, you know, the dismemberment on top of that, it's just... You know, she's got four kids. I mean, it, I think that that's one of the reasons why it hit so hard and, and th- between the TikTok and, you know, just the circumstances of like, we're in the midst of this horrible situation. And then this happens to the, these poor people. Like, I've heard interviews from the family and they're just like, you know, we want our family members to get a fair shake here. You know, yeah, they were having some issues, but it's like they didn't deserve this. No, for sure. Yeah. And the family also talked about that TikTok video and they feel conflicted about the fact that it was posted online and the fact that it has not been taken down. To this day, you can go to TikTok and watch this whole video. And the reason that TikTok has given for not removing it is because they say you don't actually see any remains. You see a plastic bag. And that's as far as it goes. The family, on the other hand, feels like, yeah, but we all know what's in there. We know that's our loved ones. And to see the way that they were found and the laughing they say, you know, we don't hold anything against these teens. They had no idea when they were recording themselves or even when they posted it, they may not have had any idea what had been found because when they left, the cops were just setting up the crime scene tape. They didn't even, you know, really know too much about what had been found by the time they posted that video. And so the family is like, you know, the teens, our kids, we don't hold anything against them, but they they are a little bit upset with TikTok, the app that it's still posted. 
Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be some future litigation there, because obviously, if they're not taking it down, you know, the, the family could have a case to say, hey, we want this taken down. And we could, this could be some kind of landmark case to say, what is okay to leave up and what, what needs to be taken down? I mean, in TikTok's pretty liberal in what they allow people to post, I think, as we all realize, you know, they, they pretty much take a hands off approach unless it's absolutely necessary. And in their statement, they basically say, because there were no remains actually shown in the video, this doesn't meet the standard of it must be taken down. Yeah. And another thing is that whoever did this was so trying to get away with it was so, you know, the, the, the parts were found all over the place. And he sealed that evidence inside, you know, that that could have been some of his, you know, undoing because they could find, you know, evidence because he made sure that, you know, he didn't want that stuff coming out. I'm, I'm really curious about the feathers that were found, yeah. because yeah. they never really explained where those came from. They they use them to link the two different discoveries of the bodies in two different places. So they use those to link those together. But at the same time, you know, I, I do wonder about was there a pillow somehow involved, maybe, or where did the feathers come from? Yeah, I'm sure all these things will will definitely come out. Um, yeah, Dudley is in the King County Jail right now. He is facing murder charges. Bail has been set at five million dollars. This case has not gone to trial yet, but we do know that Dudley is denying that he had anything to do with the murders. If you haven't already, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, and share with your friends. You can also find out a lot more about all of the cases that we cover at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime.